Welcome to ADHD SOS. We've heard your call, and don't worry, help is on the way. This is the only podcast that combines mindset skills, cognitive psychology, and the motivational pep talks you need to beat procrastination and achieve peak performance. Join me, your host and fellow ADHDer, Tina L., as we journey from SOS to smooth sailing. Welcome back, SOS Squad. Today, today we're talking about how to stop caring about what other people think and start getting things done. Essentially, we're talking about how the shackles of both people-pleasing and perfectionism keep us in procrastination and how to finally freaking break free so that we can go after our big goals. When our worth gets caught up in our work and how other people perceive it, the work becomes intimidating and overwhelming. When work feels that way, we avoid it, even when it's something we'd otherwise enjoy. But what would be possible if that were not the case for you? What might you do or stop doing if you cared less about what other people thought? What might you be capable of if failure didn't affect your feeling of self-worth? How much more willing would you be to take risks if your own self-belief was a firm and solid springboard? The great poet Mark Nepo writes an invocation for us to do just that. He says, let no one keep you from your journey, no rabbi or priest, no mother who wants you to dig for treasures she misplaced. No father who won't let one life be enough. No lover who measures their worth by what you might give up. No voice that tells you in the night it can't be done. Let nothing dissuade you from seeing what you see or feeling the winds that make you want to dance alone or go where no one has yet to go. You are the only explorer your heart the unreadable compass, your soul the shore of a promise too great to be ignored. Oh, I love that one. Let me tell you a little story about how caring what other people thought led me way off course and reinforced my procrastination. And then I'll share a powerful exercise for how to ditch perfectionism and people-pleasing altogether. After doing this exercise for just 10 minutes, you'll be primed to start taking massive action on your big goals. So when I was five, I loved nothing more than to lay cheek down on the sidewalk, peering into the tiny world of tiny creatures that existed in the thick tufts of grass. I loved watching an ant walk the balance beam of of a strand of grass and was endlessly delighted by the way the potato bugs would instantly roll up into these little balls when I tapped them. I was beyond excited to learn about the existence of photography and the fact that there was a way to permanently capture forever the tiny worlds I saw within the grasses. Going to the grocery store to pick up the blurry, out-of-focus images that came from my disposable camera was thrilling. While every other part of childhood seemed to be about being told 
what to do and how things are, this glossy piece of paper showed how I saw the world. It captured a unique moment in time and was my own unique perspective on what was interesting and worth looking at. Soon I would become obsessed with capturing water droplets, the veins of leaves, and the intricacies of my dog's outstretched tongue while he slept. I loved getting lost in the details of my world and the things it seemed nobody else noticed. But then, then something happened around the age of 11. I started to get the message that anything I spent my time on was something I needed to be great at instantly. The message I got was that if you're not a quote-unquote natural, then it's an indulgent waste of time. You're better off trying to find something you're already talented at. Perfection trumps practice any day. Plus, when you spend your time on something, you need to have something to show for it. That means you need to have created something that impresses other people. Other people need to believe that what you've created is worthy of the time you spent on it. Otherwise, it's a waste. Personal satisfaction, wonder, and joy were never part of the equation. Around that same point, time testing started happening in school, and I struggled to finish on time and tune out a classroom full of distraction. It was then that I was diagnosed with ADHD, and it quickly became clear to me that I would have to work at least five times harder than my peers to get the same results. Unsurprisingly, now when I picked up my camera, the thoughts I had were, I'm not talented enough at this. Nobody else cares about my photos. I should really be studying. I fought against these thoughts. I kept trying to pick up my camera, but every time I did, I was full of anxiety. How could I possibly make something good enough to warrant the time I'd be spending? especially considering that I was always behind on schoolwork. I kept thinking that if I really loved photography and had a shot at being pro, I wouldn't feel so anxious and full of doubt. If I really loved photography, I wouldn't be having this roller coaster of emotions. It would just be all love all the time. Sometimes I would successfully fight through these feelings of anxiety, dread, and overwhelm, and still manage to spend some time behind my lens. I even went to college for photography for two years, but ultimately I couldn't shake these feelings. Not good enough. Not enough to show for myself. This is too indulgent. I know now that I discounted the heavy toll that perfectionism and people-pleasing had on my willingness to shoot. I blamed my camera and the medium of photography as being the problem, not the attitude I brought to it. It would take me over a decade to learn that ADHD, which I had spent so long thinking was just my quote-unquote learning disability, had actually predisposed me to some very unproductive ways of thinking that would continue to keep me stuck regardless of the domain I was working in. Of course, ADHD itself, with 
it's executive dysfunction and dopamine dysfunction directly contributes to procrastination. But also the experience of growing up with ADHD in itself predisposes us to ways of thinking that inevitably make procrastination worse. In particular, there are four dark horsemen of our procrastination apocalypse. The first is people-pleasing. We learn early on that we don't deserve love if we're not pleasing other people. We become conditioned to believe that we can only be good if other people say we're good. This is how we become dependent on the approval of others. This is how we learn to value the validation of others over our own. This is how we learn to suppress our self-expression. This is why I believed I couldn't do photography unless other people liked my photographs. This is how I learned that what other people think of my work is more important than what I think of my work. This is why I ultimately quit photography altogether. At the end of the day, I lacked the safety to be who I was, which was an imperfect student, a messy and time-blind daughter, a forgetful and socially awkward friend, In an effort to regain some level of safety, I did my best to make myself into what other people wanted me to be. I put my own interests and desires on the back shelf in order to try to be a better student, a more presentable daughter, and a more well-liked friend. We ADHDers tend to inconvenience other people, and in order to avoid rejection, we try to be more of what other people want us to be. Many of us become chameleons to try to meet the interests and emotional needs of others. And when we do that, we lose a part of who we really are. Not to mention the metric ton of energy it takes to chameleon ourselves in the first place. It's so exhausting. (laughs) I mean, who has the energy to take action on their own goals when we have all this people-pleasing to do? The second dark horseman of our procrastination apocalypse is perfectionism. This is in another form of protection that we ADHDers keep in our arsenal. It's a 20-ton shield, as psychologist Dr. Brene Brown puts it. Perfectionism is an attempt to avoid the disapproval of others. Perfect people don't get criticized. Perfect people don't experience rejection. Perfect people are never told that they're not good enough. Except, except for the fact that perfect people don't take action. (laughs) Because that's the only way to stay perfect. Don't put yourself out there. Don't take a chance. Don't make yourself vulnerable to the opinion of others. In my mind, I got to remain a great photographer as long as nobody told me otherwise. Don't take pictures and... Don't show them to other people, and then you'll stay a perfect photographer. (laughs) But the thing is that then I wasn't a photographer at all, of course. I was someone who wished I was. I was someone who thought about my potential to be great. But in the end, I was too scared to put in the time and the reps it would take to get me there. 
Because if you want to be great, you have to spend a ton, ton of time being not great. And that is super vulnerable, especially for someone who is already experiencing criticism in all areas of her life on the regular. My childhood was a constant feeling of not measuring up. Did I really want to be exposing myself to more of that? I mean, no, (laughs) especially with something I treasured. Absolutely not. I wanted to keep it a treasure, all wrapped up and safely put away, immune from the critique. I can distinctly remember when I decided I would quit photography for good. It was during the final of my freshman year of photography school. You had to share your final project, a series of images in front of the class, and then your fellow students would critique you to your face in front of everyone. I remember thinking, oh, hell no, F this. I am not exposing myself like that. I felt so unsafe. And I can see now how it was the 18 years of ADHD, 18 years of trying to cover up my shortcomings, 18 years of feeling like I would fail no matter how hard I tried. It was those 18 years that made me feel like my life was in danger that day. The third dark horseman of our procrastination apocalypse is shame. Whereas guilt says we did something bad, shame cuts deeper and says we are bad. We get shamed by our caregivers and teachers, intentionally or unintentionally. And then, and then, (laughs) believing that our caregivers are right, we also become shaming and validating and rejecting of our own emotions our own beliefs, our own truth. We learned that it wasn't our shortcomings or mistakes that were bad. We were bad. I developed the habit of thinking, I'm not good enough at photography. Or I would think, I'm not good enough at school. But what I really felt was, I'm just not good enough full stop. The domain didn't really matter. Shame doesn't like to stay in a box. When we experience it in one part of our lives, it almost always spreads. The fourth dark horseman of our procrastination apocalypse is self-distrust. And unsurprisingly, self-distrust goes hand in hand with shame. It's highly likely that your caregivers and teachers denied or minimized your emotions and the truth of your experiences especially because very few people understand the experience of ADHD. Many of us were made to feel irrational, unreasonable, and too sensitive. In those circumstances, we learn that it's more important to listen to what other people think is true than to believe in our own truth. Given this, it's natural that we learn to look outside of ourselves for what is true to second-guess ourselves and question or reject our own thoughts and feelings. Our own truth can't be trusted. My own passion, motivation, and commitment to photography could not be trusted. I believed other people when they said I had to be a quote-unquote natural to have success, and clearly I wasn't. I deferred my trust to other people who said that in order to quote-unquote be something, in order to have success and a secure place in this world, 
I needed to devote myself to the things I disliked and clearly struggled in, like math and standardized tests, instead of doubling down on the things I did with ease, excitement, and rapt attention. My blood boils still thinking about how I traded in my own internal knowing for the insanely misguided advice of people who clearly were not happy and also didn't trust their own internal knowing. Thank goodness there is another place where I now put down roots. This place is on the other side of people-pleasing, perfectionism, self-distrust, and shame. It's what the great poet David White called the arrogance of belonging. In this place of belonging, you are entitled to take up space. You are not too much and you are not too little. You get to exist imperfectly. You get to decide who you think you are. You get to decide what you think is worthy of your time and attention. You can know that you are not a mess up. You can know with certainty that you are meant to be here exactly as you are. And there's plenty of room for you to be here too. But, and there's one really big but here, you have to be the one to claim the space. After this short break, I'll share a powerful exercise for how you can defeat the four dark horsemen of the procrastination apocalypse. This is how we can start taking meaningful action towards our goals. Want to know an awesome ADHD hack? Become a follower of the show and new episodes will be served to you automatically when they become available. No need to remember to have to go looking for new episodes. Fresh survival strategies will be delivered straight to the homepage of your favorite player. On Spotify, click on the name of the show and click follow under the picture of me. And on Apple Podcasts, click on the name of the show, click on the three dots on the right-hand side and select follow. I can't wait for you to join the SOS squad. So now we know the identity of our four dark horsemen of our procrastination apocalypse. People-pleasing, perfectionism, self-distrust, and shame. And we have some ideas about how they likely came into our lives. Now I'm excited to share with you this powerful exercise that you can use to defeat your dark horseman and start taking real action. The exercise I'm about to describe comes from the amazing writer, Elizabeth Gilbert. It's called Name Your Fear. We are going to let our fear have a voice. This exercise has two parts. In the first part, we'll be writing a letter from our fear. Here's how it works. First, you write, dear, and your name. I am your fear, and this is what I want to tell you. Now you let your fear speak without criticizing or interjecting. Many of us fear our fear. We're scared that if we let fear speak, it'll never shut up. Maybe it'll even swallow us whole. But what is surprising and surprised me when I did this exercise is that the list of things fear has to talk about is actually really short. And when we see that for ourselves, 
Fear goes from being this big, scary monster to more of a little angry gerbil. The little guy is so much more manageable. When I did this exercise, I found it helpful for Fear to write to me about a concrete project that I plan to take on. In the letter I'm about to share with you, I let my Fear write to me about the YouTube channel that I'm about to start. Here's what my Fear had to say to me. Dear Tina, it's me, Fear. As usual, I'm writing to you with bad news. I'm writing to warn you that if you push forward with your plans to start a YouTube channel, bad things will almost certainly happen. First things first, you're likely to waste your precious time, energy, and resources on this channel that you'll probably be frustrated by, bored of, or you'll just realize you're not any good at. I mean, you're almost 40. Can you really afford that? Can you really afford another failure? And statistically speaking, that's a likely outcome. I mean, look at all the other projects you didn't follow through on. So much regret. Do you really want to feel that again? And then there's the shame and embarrassment. I mean, what if no one connects with you or what you have to say? What if your ideas don't resonate? What if no one wants to listen? It could be like those awkward social interactions you had in high school, where you go to say something in a group conversation, and then other people jump in and talk over you. You'll have to face how truly insignificant what you think and have to say really is. It's probably better to let those other people, those people who were always better at speaking and commanding attention and have more charisma. Let's just let them do that. This is just not your lane and you know it. Why expose your inadequacy and incompetence to the world or even to yourself? Because you know that even after you failed spectacularly, you still have to keep on living with yourself, knowing how you just couldn't swing it. Just saying, I'm trying to look out for you. Your bro, Fear. Now in part two, you write a respectful letter back to Fear. This is your higher self responding to Fear. This is my response to Fear. Dear Fear, wow, that was harsh. <laughs> but I want you to know that I hear what you have to say and you're allowed to be here. You can come along for this wild ride I'm about to set off on. I'm inviting you to join because frankly, I know you'll come along no matter what. And you will only get louder when I try to ignore you. I fully expect you to shout at me from the backseat like an annoying younger sibling in that annoying voice of yours. I told you so. Oh, what an idiot. How did you ever think you could make that work? But these days, because I expect you and allow you to be here, something interesting happens. It's easier to turn the volume down on your screechy, annoying little voice. You're still there. I expect that you'll always be there. But you become background noise. I have some powerful friends that speak to me with much more clarity. They go by the names of determination, willingness, and possibility. 
These are my besties, my ride or dies, and they're the ones that will be riding shotgun with me on this new venture. They read your letter too, and this is what they have to say. On the matter of wasting my time and resources, I am a human being existing in time. I am never wasting time. Likewise, I believe, as Nelson Mandela said, I'm either winning or learning. I can't guarantee a win, but I can guarantee that I'll learn and that from that learning, I'll be a wiser human with better odds of success in the future. Yes, I have a graveyard of unfinished projects, but it's also no coincidence that I am a multi-talented person as a result. Nothing wasted. I am always refining my abilities and always getting closer to my truth. Next, let's address shame and embarrassment. I get to create a boundary here. I get to create the rules of the game I'm playing. And I get to decide that there's no shame in my game. If shame and embarrassment arise, I can remind them of my boundaries and show them the door. I don't allow shame and embarrassment in my house. All they do is muddy up the rugs, eat all my food, (laughs) and leave the dishes out for me to clean. No thank you. And I don't expect myself to be a quote-unquote natural at things I haven't practiced yet. Maybe people won't listen when I speak at first. Maybe my ideas won't resonate at first. That's all okay. I get to choose what that means. I get to decide that what that means is that I need more practice Not that I'm a fundamentally uninteresting or uncharismatic person. I get to be the one who makes the meaning here. You're right. This is not my lane. This is not like anything I've ever done before. And that's what makes it so exciting. I promise to be patient with myself. I promise to allow myself to fail without piling on shame and embarrassment. And I promise myself I won't do it alone. I'll keep my besties close. Determination, willingness, and possibility, they have my back. In the meantime, fear, I appreciate your concern. And I know you mean well, which is why I'm allowing you to come along for the ride. But I'm turning the volume on you way down so that my besties and I can rock out and truly enjoy the journey. Yours truly, Tina. When we let fear run the show, it has a way of crowding us out. It tells us that we shouldn't pick up the camera because we're not already good enough and we shouldn't risk criticism. It clouds over the bright sky of possibility with thoughts like, I'll embarrass myself, I'll waste my time, and every version of not enough, not talented enough, not smart enough, not focused enough. When we speak back to fear, we reclaim our space. We stand firmly in the arrogance of belonging. When we allow ourselves to arrogantly belong to this world, we get to be imperfect and not be ashamed of that. We get to love doing things for the sake of doing them and not for the approval of others. We get to mess up and try again and again and again without feeling like we should just be getting it right the first time. 
We get to trust in the pull of our own hearts, even when it goes against what other people think we ought to be doing. When you reclaim your space, you get to decide. You get to decide what's worth your time and energy. You get to decide that you're learning and not failing. You get to decide to have your own back. You get to decide that your own opinion of yourself matters more than the opinion of others. You get to decide to trust in your own knowing. And when you do this, you expose those four dark horsemen of your procrastination apocalypse, perfectionism, people-pleasing, shame, and self-distrust for the little angry gerbils that they actually are. And now it's time for the rescue recap. When it's sink or swim, remember these key takeaways. Today we talked about how ADHD procrastination is rooted in our brain structure, but also, also highly influenced by our early coping mechanisms as kids with ADHD. Those coping mechanisms are the four dark horsemen of our procrastination apocalypse. Perfectionism, people-pleasing, shame, and self-distrust. These four dark horsemen lead to procrastination because when our worth gets caught up in our work and how other people perceive it, the work becomes intimidating and overwhelming. When work feels that way, we avoid it. Procrastination is the inevitable result. I introduce a powerful exercise where we let fear have a voice. We let fear write us a letter explaining what there is to fear and why. And then, from our higher selves, we responded to fear. In responding to fear, we reclaimed our space that fear was crowding out. We became entitled. As the great poet David White says, we took on the arrogance of belonging to this world. And from that place, we can regain trust in our own knowing, our own inherent value, and our own resilience. So here's the challenge I want to leave you with for this week. Go ahead and write that letter from fear. Choose a challenge you're facing or something you've been avoiding. And let your fear speak its mind. Notice that when you let fear have a voice, what it has to say is limited in its content and in its scope. Expose it for the little angry gerbil it really is. And then access your higher self. Lean into the part of you that knows how powerful and capable and resilient you really are. And speak back to fear. Let fear know who's really in charge and the reasons why it's safe for fear to take the back seat in this venture. I am rooting for you and I love you. SOS Squad, over and out. Do you have a question about ADHD or an issue with productivity that you'd like to hear discussed on the show? I would love to throw you a lifeline. Send your SOS message to ADHDSOSpodcast at gmail.com. That's ADHDSOSpodcast at gmail.com. I can't wait to hear from you.